Hi, this is Josh Jackson from WRTI. Dangerous Sounds is supported by Jazz Denmark, the Danish Ministry of Culture, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Danish Arts Foundation, the Augustinus Foundation, and the members of WRTI. The following episode of Dangerous Sounds contains language that some listeners may find objectionable. The rage simmers inside him. He spent the entire morning trying to push it away or decide what to do with it. I'm going to do it. No, I shouldn't. Yes, I will. I'm going to fucking do it. He's a full head taller than everyone else on the street outside the Danish public radio building. People rush along the sidewalk to minimize time outside in the biting cold of January. They still find time, however, to stop and stare at the tall black man who breaks the ethnic uniformity they're used to in the Danish capital of Copenhagen. He's wearing a long coat and carries a saxophone gig bag in one hand and a smaller, thin case in the other. At least when he's in New York, he can walk around without being stared at. Not like here, in this overgrown village, populated by fools who act like they've never seen a black man before and only want to hear something they already know and can sing along to. Play something we know, flashes through his mind again and again, and the rage builds with each repetition. As he enters the building, he bangs the revolving door to the foyer so hard that the receptionist drops the file in her hands. A few moments later, he's made his way to the cafeteria. The symphony orchestra, entertainment orchestra, journalists, and the big band are all there. You asked for it, motherfuckers. He sets his sights on a tray by the dishwasher. He grabs the top rack filled with glasses and slams it to the floor. The silence that follows is deafening. He bends down and opens the saxophone case. He takes out his horn, lifts it up over his head like an axe, and smashes it down on top of the broken glass, sending shards in every direction. Skal vi køre en snor på den? Det tror jeg nok, det skal. Okay. You're listening to Dangerous Sounds. Story of Jazz in Denmark. My name is Christen Oskol, and this episode is about the two most legendary phone calls in the history of Danish jazz. The first call is from John Coltrane. Hello, John. Hi. The second is from Miles Davis. You hear me? Yeah. In this episode, you'll hear about how these two phone calls changed Danish jazz. We'll start with the first call to the Danish saxophonist, John Chikai. And a pleasure to welcome to the microphone here, saxophone great John Chikai. Our first 
main character is the great John Chikai. John Martin Chikai, born April 28, 1936 in Copenhagen, Denmark. To tell his story, we went deep into the archives and found interviews from both Danish and American radio. And uh, what was your first exposure to, to jazz there as a, as a youth? Um, right after the war, when... Um, the first dangerous sounds reach him as a child just after the war, when American musicians dock in his hometown of Aarhus, the second biggest city in Denmark. And they had, of course, uh, chewing gum and uh, pumpkin pie and uh, jazz records. John is immediately hooked and starts playing the saxophone. He moves to Copenhagen in his early 20s, and the tall and thin young man could be spotted from a mile away. Since I have uh, African roots, my father is African and my mother is Danish, uh, I always had a liking for the rhythmical uh, music. When Max Brühl, one of the more modernist musicians of the time, hears Tikai play the saxophone, he immediately invites him to form a band. Here's their interpretation of A Night in Tunisia. This is one of the earliest recordings of John Tikai. Yes, you could hear that was obviously a Charlie Parker quote. Let's take a moment here and do a little saxophone history, a la Tikai. At this point, Charlie Parker was his all-time hero and favorite saxophonist. Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker was one of the most important to me. Lee Konitz. Rollins. Sonny Rollins. Gitz. Stan Getz. Oh, Hawkins. Coleman Hawkins. Oh, Webster. Ben Webster. All legendary saxophonists and creators of their own styles with bodies of work you can and should spend the rest of your life checking out. All right, the, the 1962 Helsinki Festival. Chikai starts touring and playing at jazz festivals around Europe. That uh, led me to uh, uh, get in contact with uh, visiting American musicians, uh, got to know Artie Shep. Bill Dixon. Sonny Murray or Albert Eiler. Each of these people is an iconic free jazz creator in their own right. Free jazz. It's a term that appears in the wake of saxophonist Honor Coleman's album of the same name, recorded in 1960. The term covers a form of free improvisation, where the musicians do away with traditional harmonies and structures, instead playing melodies of their own choice freely, unbound by the limitations of the conventional harmonic grid. Onet Coleman also called it homolotics. He described it as, and I quote, the use of the physical and the mental of one's own logic 
made into an expression of sound to bring about the musical sensation of unison executed by a single person or with a group. At this point, the rhythm's not completely free yet. That happens when Sonny Murray enters the stage here. And later this subgenre spreads into countless sub 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 genres. So, in 1962, Tikai has just met some of the true heavy hitters on the international jazz scene. Archie Shep, Bill Dixon, Sonny Murray, and Albert Isler. These new acquaintances will soon prove to have enormous significance on his musical career. And shortly after um, they, they, uh, we met in Finland in 1962, I decided to, um, to go to New York. John has a girlfriend. Annette. My wife at that time, uh, we weren't married, we got married in, in, in New York. Annette works for the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and it just so happens that she's about to be assigned to the offices in New York. So that's how we got the possibility to go. For a jazz musician at this moment in time, there is no wilder place to be on the whole planet than New York City. Musical rules are being written, new languages invented, and minds blown. New York is absolutely erupting with creativity. And before long, Tikai gets a call from a certain John Coltrane. We'll get to that in a bit. But right now, in 1962, the 26-year-old John Tikai has arrived in New York City, the capital of jazz music. I quickly sought out Archie Shep who then introduced me to other musicians. Things are really happening now. John has only been in New York City for less than a year, and he's already recording with some of the most visionary and forward-thinking musicians in the city. New York Contemporary Five. Artie Schick, Don Thierry, Don Moore on bass, and there was J.C. Moses on trauma, and so that's John Tsikai on that side of the a supergroup creating some of the boldest, bravest and most innovative music of the time. Why do you think you were accepted with such open arms back then? Could it have had anything to do with race? You're from Aarhus, but also have African roots, so you don't necessarily look like a typical Dane. Did that make it easier for you, that people may have thought you were actually American, in terms of audience and acceptance? It probably had. I didn't think much about it at that time. 
while I was there in the middle of it all. But it's clear that if I had been white, then it probably would have been different. I might not have received the same warm welcome from the black musicians. But you can't say with any certainty, but it's possible. There were definitely quarrels and conflicts between the white and the black musicians in the 60s. Hear Coltrane's song. Sing Alabama once again. Sing Alabama once again. And weep against untimely death. It's possible that Chikai's appearance may have opened some doors for him in New York City. But one thing we know for certain is that a musical fire burned inside him, which you can hear here on one of the 11 recordings he makes while he's in New York. John makes a name for himself during these years and is creating serious music with serious people. He plays in several different constellations in addition to the New York Contemporary Five. You were involved with the New York Art Quartet, mm-hmm. which um, that was, well, personally one of my favorite bands. One of them being the groundbreaking New York Art Quartet. In all of the groups he plays in, He's experimenting, creating new sounds and pushing the boundaries of musical language, writing jazz history with each note, solo, recording session and concert. Chikai stands out at this point for deliberately playing very different kinds of melodies than the American musicians around him. Many of them are fully invested in the Coltrane tradition, playing fire music, as it was called, which makes John Tikai's acidic alto playing really stand out. People are noticing, including John Coltrane. And one day, in Tikai's apartment in Manhattan, the phone rings. Coltrane called me and asked if I was interested in playing. And of course I said yes. It was an incredible experience to be in the same room with the great master that we all looked up to. John Coltrane is the creator of a very special sound, style, and way of thinking about chords, harmony, and improvisation. His foresight, progressiveness, uncompromising drive, and vision are undeniable on albums like 
Kind of Blue with Miles Davis and Giant Steps. Among others, he releases in his own name, such as A Love Supreme, Transition and Expression. Coltrane was one of the foremost pioneers of freeing jazz music from traditional forms and frameworks, though he would do it in a more inside-out way rather than the outside-in way like Honor Coleman did. There's no end to what can be learned and absorbed from them. It's none other than John Coltrane who has taken notice of and seen the light in Danish saxophonist John Tikai and invites him to a session at the legendary Rudy van Gelder studio in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey on June 28, 1965. And the first thing he did was take out some small pieces of paper, kneel down in the middle of the studio and start writing out some voices. And then each of us got one of the pieces of paper. They were meeting places where we could find each other in between the different sections. It was the first time I've ever been together with Coltrane for so long. A whole day while we made that recording. Spirits were high and the energy was good. It was one of the highlights of my time there. Less than a year later, John Tikai is back in Denmark. It's planned as a short visit before he and Annette return to New York, but it turns out to be more permanent. Our relationship became a mess, so we gave up all our plans, and that was that. So back in, in Denmark in 66, did you form a group then? Upon returning home, he forms the Cadencia Nova Danica group. Cadencia Nova Danica means a kind of improvised movement, a Danish improvised uh, movement. The band initially consists of Hugh Steinmetz on trumpet, Kim Metzer on trombone, Chikai and Carsten Vogel on alto saxophones, Finn von Eiben on bass, Bo Trie Andersen on drums, and Giorgio Musoni on percussion. Later, the group expands to include Max Brühl, his old friend from before he went to New York, and eventually ends up as a huge 25-piece band. The contrast between New York's progressive environment, where the boundaries of musical barriers are in constant motion, and the Danish scene at this time is enormous for Tikai. The newly formed Cadencia Nova Danica just isn't getting the attention it deserves. Either we are artists 
or not artist. And if you cater to the audience, you'll never get anywhere. The thing we call avant-garde music, I think we can all agree that it doesn't appeal to many people. No, I'll not say that. It's been nearly two years since his return from New York. Tikai is now 31 years old and fed up. In recent years, a rage has been growing inside him. Rage over the poor conditions for avant-garde jazz and a fierce hatred for Denmark's radio who refused to play his music. And in the early afternoon of January 16th, 1968, John Tikai has had enough. His saxophone is almost unrecognizable now. Some keys broke off and are scattered with the glass around the cafeteria floor. No one's made a sound since his entrance. He takes his flute from its case and snaps it like a twig over his knee, adding the bent and broken pieces of silver metal to the assortment of glass and brass. He takes a moment to admire his work. He enjoys the silence and the attention of the room. Taking a deep breath, he says, This is what I think about Denmark's radio management and the directors of the music and entertainment departments, Mogens Andersen, Borges, Roger Heinrichsen, Eric Mosholm, and Berger Jorgensen. Someone snorts loudly from the big band's table. And the guitarist. Oh, thank God, he says, laughing. I thought he was going to play. The words bounce right off Chikai. They can all fuck themselves, he thinks to himself, and walks out. It's done. He's through playing. It was an expensive spectacle. The saxophone was expensive. Was it worth it? Danish newspaper ran with the story. Jazz musician John Chikai held a protest yesterday to the tune of 40 broken glasses, a smashed saxophone, and a flattened flute. The next day, Chikai finds a handwritten letter in his mailbox. It's from Roger, Borges Roger Einrichsen, the head of the jazz editorial office. What the hell does he want? Chikai reluctantly reads the letter. Dear John, unfortunately, I wasn't in the cafeteria the other day to witness your happening. It saddens me that we've apparently become so distant that we can't communicate calmly about things. Things aren't going to get any easier either, because now the press has a story to run with. I always thought that we'd be able to talk things through objectively should a problem arise. There's no need for bitter or hurt feelings between us. I hope you see things the same way. From your boy, 
Borgé Roger. The scene in the cafeteria was intended to be a final farewell to music, but it doesn't take long before a still angry Tikai returns to playing. From here, he creates some of the most avant-garde groups and performances ever heard and witnessed in the history of Danish jazz. I remember people telling stories about him throwing fish at the audience at one show. He completely does away with Danish conformity, the pleasant unspoken rules of being together in Danish society and music, and I can confidently say that without John Tikai, Danish jazz would sound completely different today. For some of today's musicians, Tikai's actions in the Danish radio's cafeteria remain an important manifestation of what separates the dangerous sounds from the bland conformity that's also always existed in jazz, which this podcast is not about. Listen to the Danish bassist Peter Danstrup describe how it was a defining moment, not just for Tikai, but for everyone. How you could tell something about a person based on their reaction to what happened in the cafeteria that day. People who thought it was amusing, they belonged to some kind of reactionary group of musicians who can all go screw themselves, by the way. Go home and cry about it. The rest of us are doing something we believe in, something serious, and we're ready to smash our instruments for it. We're in for a completely different place. That's how I felt. And that's how I still feel. That was the story of the first important phone call in Danish jazz history. Now, let's go to 1983. Another phone rings. This time at the home of Danish trumpeter Pelle Mikkelborg. Pelle is a master trumpeter and one of the most important figures in Danish music for the last 50 years. Pelle has actually been with us the whole time since the very first episode of Dangerous Sounds. This is Pelle. He can be heard in our intro sounds along with Denmark's radio's wonderful guerrilla jazz group Radio Jazzgruppen, which unfortunately no longer exists. Here is a young Pelle shining on the Sahib Shihab tune Not Yet. The album is from 1965 and physical copies are incredibly hard to find. Okay, back on track. The phone rings at Pelle's place. And on the other end of the line, he hears a hushed, raspy voice. Hello, 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 hello. It's his childhood role model and musical idol, Miles Davis. Can you hear me? After the call, Pelle is completely flabbergasted. But how did we get here? Let's get the backstory that leads up to this historic phone call. Something sensational is happening in Denmark. A landmark decision has been made. 
The Sunning Music Prize, a prestigious classical music award of the highest honor, is to be given to a jazz musician for the first time ever. Let's go. Until now, the grand prize has only been given to living legends in classical music, such as Igor Stravinsky. But it's time to try something new, something different. And the jazz musician the award committee has decided to honor is Miles Davis. The outstanding modern sounds trumpet player of our time. I mentioned the word innovative in my intro. Last night I mentioned the word legend. Oh, you mean le legend? Yeah, I don't like that. Looking at it from the outside, it seems like a totally crazy idea. Not to poke too much fun at Denmark, but it's a little like getting Beyonce, the Queen Bee, to play at a party at a high school or a senior prom. Miles Davis doesn't just come to Copenhagen to play for a classical gathering of suits and board members. This kind of thing just doesn't happen. It's unbelievable. Keep in mind that at this time, Miles Davis is widely regarded as a living musical deity. He doesn't owe anyone anything. And he would much rather focus on his own projects and race around in his sports cars than come to Denmark. Behind the scenes, the prize committee is doing everything they can. They've approached and persuaded Pelle Mikkelborg to compose a brand new musical work that will be played in honor of Miles Davis at the award ceremony. If the younger trumpet player can convince the living legend to come to Copenhagen at all. But not even Pelle was on board at first. Og jeg var lige ved at sige nej. Jeg kunne ikke finde ind i det. I was just about to say no. I just couldn't see it. He was too big, too powerful. He was kind of untouchable to me and had a reputation for testing and pushing people, giving them stuff they couldn't handle and things like that. There was so much mystery around him. Countless communications in the form of telegrams and letters are sent to Miles with polite, flattering language, inviting him to the award ceremony. But nothing even resembling a response ever comes back. It's time to increase the pressure. Enter Erik Moseholm. Miles Davis, Miles Davis has always been one of my favorite trumpet players. Erik Moseholm has been at the center of the Danish jazz scene for decades, both as a bassist and as a passionate personality who is involved in everything from politics to education and lobbying for jazz. At this time, he's involved in leading Denmark's radio big band. And he is the kind of person who knows everyone and how to make things happen. They asked me if I could get in touch with Miles Davis and ask him if he wanted to receive the Sunning Prize. I had one year to do it. Of course, I started by listening to all his records and reading all the interviews he had given. That part didn't take very long. And then I read books written about him, so I knew everything about Miles. 
Meanwhile, Pelle Mikkelborg is sitting at home in Denmark, sweating over pages of sheet music. It's a nerve-wracking task for Pelle. Miles has been his hero ever since he started playing the trumpet as a 14-year-old. Miles Davis' approach to the trumpet amazed me. He has a voice that's completely unique, a way of thinking. It was so humanistic and so untrumpet-like, and I really like that, to play the trumpet like a human voice. Pelle is awestruck, intimidated, and has a tough time turning on his creativity. How on earth is he supposed to create something that does justice to one of the greatest musical geniuses in history? It's almost like Miles has already said everything there is to say. It was like everything was already covered. What can you do? But after weeks and weeks of frustration, abandoned ideas and countless crumpled pages of sheet music in the trash, finally Pelle has a brilliant breakthrough. He'll write a suite inspired by Miles Davis's aura and reflecting his transformations through various stylistic periods over his career. If I'm going to try something, if I dare to try something, then I'll try to describe my experience of Miles's aura, where he's been, where he is now, and maybe something about where he's headed. Pelle will create a musical portrait of Miles Davis's aura. But first, he needs to create a system for interpreting the moods and shades of the famously moody genius. Every part of Miles' aura and shift in activities is assigned a color. I'll do it using basic colors, and then maybe add a few more. Pink, for example, which I believe belongs in his world. And then I just started writing. Pelle Mikkelborg also develops a system that allows him to spell with tones. If you have a chromatic series of notes, for example, two octaves, from C to C to C, and below them write the alphabet from A to C, and from them just take M, M, I, L, E, S. That's Miles Davis. It's so simple. I'm almost embarrassed to say it. The question then becomes whether or not Miles will ever hear the suite. If this had been Wayne Shorter or Herbie Hancock or Dizzy Gillespie or any other of the biggest stars in jazz music, it wouldn't have been utopian. 
but Miles is above and beyond all of them. And on top of that, Miles is also a lot more difficult than all the others. He's no cheerful Louis Armstrong or suave Benny Goodman. He can be antisocial. Miles is known for being short with his words and considered arrogant, bordering on sarcastic and hostile. An extremely temperamental person that you should keep at a bit of a distance. Everyone has a story about Miles being Miles. My favorite is the story of when he's at the White House. Ronald Reagan is president and his wife Nancy turns to Miles and says that his parents must be proud that he's been invited to meet the president. Miles looks stiffly at her and without blinking replies, well, I've changed the course of music five or six times. What have you ever done except fuck the president? Miles is direct, no-nonsense, hypersensitive of his surroundings, and very conscious of not being taken advantage of. I'm not a, an Uncle Tom. You know, I don't dance and, you know, I just do what I do. I re refuse to be under anyone, you know. Not let anybody belittle you, you know. Miles also lives a hard life. He's incredibly ambitious and completely uncompromising in his music, constantly trying to be one step ahead, even of himself. He's also had serious problems with drugs and alcohol in periods throughout his life. And after several years at the top, it's become harder for him to control life in the fast lane. Quite literally. In one accident after another, he crushes cars and breaks bones in flashy vehicles that have become synonymous with his name and reputation. It's the aura of this chaotic and uncompromising human that Pele will try to capture in his new suite. It's the spring of 1984, and Special Agent Moseholm is both so close to and so far from his goal. He's made a deal with Miles' manager and is now standing on the stoop outside the trumpet god's apartment. There's nothing random about the timing of this visit. His arrival has been carefully planned. Miles just got out of the hospital after yet another crash in one of his sports cars. He's on crutches, so they know he can't actually run away. But whether he'll agree to come to Copenhagen and listen to Palace Suite seems highly unlikely. He sits on the bottom steps between the two floors of the apartment. It's as New York City as you can get, right on Central Park with a view overlooking the Metropolitan Museum of Art through spectacularly large windows. The jazz god hobbles around the apartment with a crutch under his left arm and a trumpet in his right hand. 
barely acknowledging the Danish man sitting in his home, staring at him. The situation was unreal. I was sitting there and Miles Davis was playing for me. He walked around and hobbled and there was a mute in the trumpet. And I like it best when he plays with a mute. So that was fine with me. But Eric Mosholm is satisfied. So far, so good. Everything is going according to plan. He's been in touch with Davis's manager, who said that Miles has agreed to receive the award, mostly because Stravinsky also got it once. But he also said, in no uncertain terms, that there was no way Miles would make the trip to Copenhagen for the award ceremony, and they should forget about him participating in any form of concert, out of the question. Somehow, though, Moe's home is still here. Neither man speaks to the other. Many floors below them, the city traffic rumbles away, forming a backdrop to the ghostly faint tones from the trumpet. And all of a sudden, he stops in front of me and turns and says, Where's the money? You can come and get them in Copenhagen. Then he played on. In one corner of the room, Mosholm notices an easel with a canvas on it. His eyes twinkle and he rubs his chin with interest as he gets up to study the painting a bit closer. He has an idea. I did a whole page of two pages. Have you ever had your paintings on display? Mosholm asks. Miles limps over and joins him in front of the easel. No. Some of my friends want me to do the album cover. If you come to Copenhagen and accepted the award and just play for five minutes, we can arrange a huge exhibition with your works there. Silence. And then a barely audible, raspy whisper. All right. Yeah, I'll do that. The deal is done. Erik Moseholm has completed his mission. So now Mikkelborg needs to finish his suite before Miles arrives. I went home to the hotel and called Palle and said, It's done, Palle. He's coming. Now it's up to Palle to complete the work before Miles arrives. Palle had written the first version of Aura where he wanted to describe Miles's aura and had had major problems with it. He actually called me a month before the concert and said, I've never been cut out for this. I fainted last night because it is taking so much out of me. I don't think I can do it. It's just too much for me. Then I said to him, you're writing that piece because we're going to have a concert in a month. He's coming and you're finishing it now. At long last, Pelle finishes his suite. Seven movements and an overture, each representing a color in the aura of Miles Davis. White. Yellow. 
orange, red, green, blue. Indigo, violet, word of what's happening sizzles throughout the Danish jazz community. The radio big band which will perform Palace work begin final rehearsals in the Falconea Hall where the concert and award ceremony will take place. The once impossible project, launched over a year ago, is approaching its culmination. This is far beyond any normal concert. The musicians in the band are more excited than usual. Everyone wants to be at the best while in the presence of the master. And this, of course, applies especially to Pelle. Everyone has something at stake. And then it finally happens. The day before the big ceremony on December 14, 1984, Miles Davis finally arrives. So come on, he arrives and we meet him at the airport. Hello, 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 hello. Here I am. Pelle and Erik Moseholm have rented a limousine that takes them to the Falconer Hall where the big band is waiting to play through the work just for miles. You must have been following me. I have. I've just... I have. I have. I have, so this is a real big moment in my life. The limo stops in front of the Falconer Hall. Miles, Mikkelborg and Moseholm step out of the car and into the concert hall. I think I had done everything I could. And if he didn't like it, well, that's it. I couldn't have done it any better. I made it in seven movements, as I told you. One movement has a certain color to the aura. Which, as I saw it, as I heard it. Well, when you say shit like that, look at the camera, man, because nobody believes you. You have to look at the camera and say that. I already know. It's tremendous. It's the moment of truth for Pelle, for his suite, for all of Erik Moseholm's reconnaissance work, for the entire award ceremony, prize committee, and the classical music fund that took a chance by honoring a jazz musician for the first time ever. He was totally safe. If he didn't like it, he could just say so and leave right away. Now the real test begins. Something has changed over the course of the week of rehearsals in the hall. Talk is sparse and doesn't come as easily as it did before. Everything feels different. The atmosphere has grown increasingly tense. But that was always the rumor and the risk. Miles's presence alone is enough to fill any room. He doesn't have to say anything. The mood just changes even if he's just sitting in the corner. The master settles into a seat in the front row of the otherwise empty hall. 
most of his face hidden behind large, yellow-tinted sunglasses. Polly turns to face the band on stage and signals for them to get ready. He can feel the heat of his heartbeat pulsing in his temples. It starts in his feet and goes up his legs, through his spine. This could go completely wrong. The lights are dimmed. He closes his eyes, takes a deep breath, and then begins cueing instruments and sections into their entrances. Now, gongs ring out across and through the hall. Now, he cues the woodwinds. It's beautiful. He couldn't have written it any differently. Now, the brass enters. Before long, he's engrossed in the music, so much that he can barely feel the master's silent stare burning into the back of his neck. And then, between two movements, he smiles and looks back over his shoulder but the smile quickly vanishes. His look hardens and then blackens. The front row is empty. Miles Davis isn't in his seat. He's not even in the room. The huge hall is totally empty, apart from the musicians on stage. Polly isn't sure how long they've been playing, but they're not even halfway through the piece. He stopped the band. There's no reason to keep playing. He can't bear to speak to anyone on his way out of the hall. He feels the enormous weight of the moment come down on him. All of the hard work and preparation that went into this. His whole body feels heavy and tired. He's alone on the way to the restroom when Miles comes out the door. He doesn't know what to say. He wants to apologize and explain everything. But before he gets the chance, the master calls out to him, Polly. Madeline, he's a motherfucker. He said that to me. I couldn't have asked for a bigger compliment. He's a motherfucker. Now, after all these years, I let myself tell you that story. He really said that to me. Pelle has written a monster piece of work. I'm in pretty good company, right? The two trumpeters follow each other back into the concert hall. The band picks up where they left off, playing with more enthusiasm than ever. Miles finds his seat and sits back down in the hall where Erik Moseholm is also sitting. I sat next to Miles and listened to the music. And Pelle had written a very specific spot where Miles should come in and play along, a chord that represented his aura. The aura was in that chord. Miles didn't know anything about that. He was just sitting down there with me while the others played. But when they got to that specific chord, he felt it. It spoke to him, and he started finding the notes in his trumpet. And then he went up on stage. 
Miles grabs his trumpet and wanders around the hall and up on stage as he plays his way into the universe that Pelle has created in his honor. The next evening, things are serious in the Falconer Hall. The foyer is filled with Miles Davis's paintings, and jazz fans from all over Europe have made a pilgrimage to Frederiksberg to attend the sold-out concert. It's time to present Aura to the world. Miles plays on the last movement, Violet. The applause is deafening. The impossible is now a reality, and Pelle and the others can breathe a sigh of relief and forever tell the true story of how they once played a concert with Miles Davis, even if it was only for five minutes. But a week after the concert, something even crazier happens. The phone rings at Pelle's place. And now we're back to the second legendary phone call. It's Miles, calling with an idea, but more of a command than a question. He wants to record Pelle's composition, Aura, in Denmark. So he came to Copenhagen and was humorous, gentle, beautiful, fantastic, but genius. What was it that caught your ears when you first went to the concert and played the music? Uh, the structure of the chords, the sound that he writes, the scale he wrote with my name. Why are you calling me Miles and shit? Huh? Don't Miles me. Play it so soft, Marilyn. Soft. The record will, of course, be called Aura, and it's considered by many to be Miles Davis's last masterpiece. And the recordings in the Easy Sound studio in Copenhagen are now a piece of Danish history. Dangerous Sounds is produced by Mano Mano and distributed by WRTI Philadelphia. Creston Osgood is the host, with narrator Joan as policewoman. Special thanks to Eva Frost at Jazz Denmark, project manager Sue Edwards, and Josh Jackson from WRTI. Learn more about our mission to champion music as a vital cultural resource. Visit WRTI.org.